That was a joke. Nobody laughed. What a surprise. So unusual for this group. We're in Psalm 73. But before we begin, let's join in prayer. Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your goodness to us. Lord, we pray that as we go through your word tonight, Lord, may your word go through us. We ask that you work in our hearts in a special way. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, tonight we begin 11 consecutive psalms attributed to a man named Asaph. You know, the original Asaph was one of King David's three chief musicians, along with Heman and Juduthan. Asaph was one of David's three master musicians. And Psalm 73 through 83, along with Psalm 50, are credited to Asaph. Now, Asaph was not only a godly man and a skilled musician, but he was able to leave behind a legacy of praise and passion and faithfulness. The sons of Asaph became a temple guild that supervised worship for generations to come. In fact, for the next 600 years, every time a spiritual awakening occurs within the nation Israel, it seems that one of the sons of Asaph have a crucial role. The original sons played at the dedication of Solomon's temple. That was an important gig. 270 years later, their descendants were part of Hezekiah's revival. A hundred years after that, they were involved in the revival of Josiah. And another hundred years later, they returned with the Jews from Babylon. And when the foundation of the temple was laid, it was the sons of Asaph who led in praise. As we study tonight's Psalms, we'll notice that all the songs are authored by Asaph. But they seem to span different periods of Israel's history. How could that be? How could they all have been composed by the same person, Asaph? Well, the answer is there were probably different Asaphs. Asaph and Asaph Jr. and Asaph III and on and on it goes. Asaph became a surname like Blevins or like Mumford. And so apparently songs written by Asaph's descendants were all discredited to the name Asaph. Now, let Asaph's life be a reminder and be an encouragement to the power of godly parents. For Asaph left a spiritual heritage, a legacy of worship that lasted for generations. I mean, this man was a faithful worship leader, and he inspired worship in the hearts of his heirs. Worship is contagious. When a man truly worships God from his heart, his kids will get in on it. They'll also mimic his passion for worship. Reminds me of a song by Dan Fogelberg. Remember him? It's entitled Leader of the Band. It goes like this. It's about his dad, by the way. He says, the leader of the band is tired and his eyes are growing old, but his blood runs through my instrument and his song is in my soul. My life has been a poor attempt To imitate the man, I'm just a living legacy to the leader of the band. That song could have been written by Asaph and one of his sons. Well, Psalm 73 is entitled, A Song of Asaph. And along with Psalm 10, 
Psalm 37 and Psalm 49, Psalm 73 addresses the thorny problem. If God is good and just and omnipotent, then why do the righteous sometimes suffer and why do the wicked often prosper? Ever wondered that question? I like how Warren Wiersbe outlines this psalm. He says, Psalm 73 begins, God is good. And it ends with, it is good, but in between, things are not very good. Well, verse 1 tells us, truly, God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. You see, this is the psalmist's statement of faith. This is his creed. Yet he's having a hard time reconciling his creed with the deeds that he sees around him. Asaph admits, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Man, when I saw the drug dealer's mansion and the tax evader's sports car and the crime boss's beachfront condo, when I saw them getting away with their crimes, I became envious and I almost stumbled. He almost bought into the idea that good guys finish last. That sin does pay. The psalmist was almost blinded by life's injustices and apparent contradictions. You see, Asaph almost forgot that God always gets the last laugh. The psalmist was walking by sight, not by faith. And he came close to denying what he knew because of situations he couldn't explain. Verse 4 records his observations about the wicked men around him. He says, For there are no pangs in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than heart could wish. Evil men have all that the world can offer, wealth and power. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue walks through the earth. They defy God and they get away with it. The rules don't apply to them. He says, therefore his people return here and waters of a full cup are drained by them. And they say, how does God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? How arrogant are these people? They've concluded that God, that they're beyond God's scrutiny. That God is oblivious to their schemes and their deeds. And here's the contrast that has really bummed him out. In light of what's happening with the wicked, he says, Behold, these are the ungodly who are always at ease. They increase in riches. Surely I have cleansed my heart, but in vain. And I've washed my hands in innocence, for all day long I have been plagued and chastened every morning. He's saying people who do evil, they live in abundance. Well, man, I'm trying to keep a pure heart. I'm pursuing righteousness. And it's an uphill battle every day. I'm tired. I'm troubled. I'm always plagued. And he's basically asking, why fight it? Does piety really pay? Why serve God? Why not just sell out and give in and reap the temporary rewards of selfishness? Understand, Asaph is the victim of some naive thinking and of some false assumptions. 
he has concluded the ungodly are always at ease. You know, the wicked may appear to have it made, but trust me, sin has some ugly consequences. You might not ever see it. Oh, but they feel it. They see it. They know it. A tormented conscience, destructive addictions, a growing despair about the meaning of life, a spiritual vacuum in the midst of all of this materialism, fragmented relationships, an inevitable judgment hanging over their head. Hey, the lifestyle of the rich and famous is not all it's cracked up to be. There can be problems. There can be difficulties. You know, money has a way of corrupting. It has a way of getting in there and ruining good things and relationships. And he's also drawn some wrong conclusions about the lifestyle of the godly. He says, surely I have cleansed my heart in vain. He's concluded there's no gain in being good. But that's not true either. You see, Asaph has become short-sighted. His perspective has become myopic. He's lost sight of the big picture. And he needs to view life from an eternal perspective. You see, Satan in this world have knocked Asaph off track. Understand, foolish thinking leads to faulty assumptions which lead to false conclusions. Now, he gets straightened out in verse 15. He says, if I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. You see, Asaph slid into the mire when he tried to reconcile life's discrepancies on his own. Remember, as did Job in asking why he lost his way. And as in the case with Asaph, there are times when the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer, and we look to God for an explanation. But understand, faith doesn't always get a reason. God doesn't always offer us an explanation. God is sovereign, and He does as He pleases without getting our permission or giving us an explanation. This is the first rule of life. God is God. He's not applying for the job. And you've got to learn to let God be God. I love the old adage, where God places a period, don't you change it to a question mark. I saw on television recently a man who suffers from a diminished eyesight. And it's as if he's always looking through a straw. I mean, that's the breath of his vision. This is also the case sometimes with our perspective. Life is this huge canvas, and at times God's brushstrokes, they cover the edges, and we don't see them. This is where we need to trust the painter. When life is easy to figure, there's no need for faith. There's times when we have to concede that God is at work in ways that we don't see, that we don't know, that we don't understand. We need to learn to trust God even when we can't trace God. You see, life in a fallen world had thrown Asaph for a loop. He's confused. But rather than sink in despair, the chief musician is smart. He knows where to go when he needs to know. He goes to the sanctuary. We're told he went into the sanctuary of God. He went into God's presence to get God's perspective. He went into the sanctuary to have God straighten out his perspective. He said, when I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their end. 
Man, life on the mean streets of this world is dog-eat-dog. And it's easy for our concern to shift from eternal salvation to momentary survival. Heaven's viewpoint can get obscured. It can even get lost in the rough and tumble of this world. And that's why we need to constantly retreat to the sanctuary as often as we can. We need to review the right perspective. We need to get alone with God. We need to get out our Bibles. We need to come to church. We need to constantly be reminded of of how we should be viewing life from an eternal perspective. Boy, we need the perspective of the sanctuary rather than the perspective of the streets. The rest of Psalm 73 reveals the change in viewpoint that overcomes Asaph after he takes the time to align his thoughts with God's thoughts. He sees more clearly the plight of the wicked. He says with the last line of verse 17, Then I understood their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. Remember how Psalm 73 begins? My steps nearly slipped. But now the psalmist, now he comes back around and he says, No, it's the wicked who walk in slippery places. He says, oh, how they are brought to destruction, as in a moment. I mean, things can be going great. But boy, the stock market crash, and all of a sudden that 401k, man, it's just peanuts. How quickly things can change. In a moment, they're brought to desolation. They're utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream, when one awakes, so, Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image Thus my heart was grieved and I was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. The psalmist bemoans how foolish and how short-sighted he had actually been to think that, that, that evil would ultimately prosper. Now after some time with God, after time in the sanctuary, he'll never again question God's sovereignty. God is God. We need to learn to trust him. Verse 23 tells us, Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me to glory. Asaph has renounced his own wisdom for God's counsel. You know, I don't advocate tattoos. But I was thinking this week, if I did get a tattoo, or if I did advise someone to get a tattoo that would be good for you, what would it be? And here's what I came up with. If you want to get a tattoo, ink Proverbs 14, verse 12 on the back of your eyelids. So you'll always see it. And this is what it says. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. If you want to get a tattoo, put that somewhere on your bod. There is a way that seems right to man, But the end is the way of death. How we need to remember that. You see, what I see is not always what I get. My vantage point is so narrow. There are some things that I think are so right and so good until I look further into it and I was wrong. You see, we're prone to wrong assumptions and false conclusions. This is why we need God's counsel. Man, this is why we need to go into the sanctuary. To get our information, not out on the streets. Best way to go through life is holding God's hand. He says, whom have I in heaven but you? 
And there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For indeed, those who are far from you shall perish. You have destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all your works. I love that. But it is good for me to draw near to God. And it's good for you to draw near to God as well. Author Joe Bailey, he once commented, Recall in the darkness what you learned in the light. That's what Asaph has done here. Another way of saying it would be, remember in the streets what you learned in the sanctuary. It's up to us. We can learn God's way or we can go it the hard way. Well, Psalm 74 is also a contemplation of Asaph, and it deals with the destruction of the temple at the hands of the Babylonians. He says, O oh God, why have you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? You know, in hindsight, history teaches us that God didn't cast his people off forever. That God's promises to Israel were sure and certain and eternal. But at this point in their history, Israel certainly felt forsaken by God. The Babylonians had, had come and had sacked the city. They had breached the walls. They had burned the temple to the ground. Where is God? They cried out. He says, remember your congregation, which you have purchased of old, the tribe of your inheritance, which you have redeemed, this Mount Zion where you have dwelt. He's talking about the temple there in Jerusalem. This was your dwelling place. Remember us, Lord. Verse 3, lift up your feet to the perpetual desolations. The enemy has damaged everything in the sanctuary. I mean, he looks around. The temples has been torched. It's been burned to the ground. The dwelling place of God is now in ashes, and it's broken his heart. Verse 4, your enemies roar in the midst of your meeting place. They set up their banners for signs. They seem like men who lift up axes among thick trees, and now they break down its carved work all at once with axes and hammers. They have set fire to your sanctuary. They have defiled the dwelling place of your name to the ground, they said in their hearts, let us destroy them all together. They have burned up all the meeting places of God in the land. The year was 586 B.C. On July the 18th of that year, King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army breached Jerusalem's walls and invaded the city. Eighteen days later, on August the 6th, the Babylonians burned the sacred temple to the ground. I always remember that, August the 6th. It's my mother-in-law's birthday. I don't know if there's a connection there, but that's how I remember it. Imagine this. I mean, the beautiful cedar planks from Lebanon, man, they're charred. The ornate linens that have been woven meticulously are burned to ashes. The gold that adorned the furniture, that covered the censers and the bowls and, the, and the, the shovels that went into the fire. All these things now were melted by the fiery heat. For two and a half weeks, the banners of Nebo and Baal and Merodach, idols of Babylon, hung in the temple. A declaration of Babel's victory over Israel. 
See, Psalm 74 was written by a Jew who had seen all this and had been taken prisoner to Babylon. And he's writing now from a broken heart. Tears stain the parchments on which he's writing. Regret fills his heart over the plight of his people and even more so over the reputation of his God. For God isn't being praised or glorified here. Asaph grieves in verse 9. We do not see our signs. There is no longer any prophet, nor is there any among us who knows how long. The prophet Daniel had been taken to Babylon nearly 20 years, late, or 20 years earlier. Ezekiel had been taken captive in 597 B.C., about 11 years previously. At the time this psalm was written, Jeremiah was probably down in Egypt. There was no prophet left to speak to God's, God's word to God's people. And a sure sign of God's judgment on a nation is the absence of a prophet. Amos tells us this. Amos 8 verse 11 tells us, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord God, that I will send a famine on the land, but not a famine of bread, nor thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro, seeking the word of the Lord, but shall not find it. This is a tragedy, to seek a word from God in a critical hour and to have the heavens remain silent. But this is God's judgment on the people. The absence of a prophet is always a judgment on the people. The psalmist cries out again in verse 10. He says, Oh God, how long will the adversary reproach? Will the enemy blaspheme your name forever? Notice the issue in his mind is how long? How long will Jerusalem lie in ruins? Years later in Babylon, Daniel reads the writings of Jeremiah and he finds the answer to Asaph's question. God had predicted that the Jews would remain in Babylon for 70 years. Daniel tells us about his discovery in Daniel chapter 9, verse 2. I wonder how many other of our questions would be answered if we just open up and read our Bibles. We're told, why do you withdraw your hand, even your right hand? Take it out of your bosom and destroy them. Now, Asaph is puzzled here as to why God's hands are stuck in his pockets when a pagan army is trampling down his temple. Jeremiah 7 provides one answer. You see, there were Jews at the time that had trusted in the temple instead of the God of the temple. That happens a lot to us. We begin to trust in the things of God rather than in God himself. These Jews believed that God would protect Judah just because the temple sat within their city limits. Jeremiah tells these Jews to go up to Shiloh, a city just north of Jerusalem. For at one time, the tabernacle of Moses resided in Shiloh. But that didn't stop Shiloh's judgment. For God sent the Philistines, and they sacked the city, and they destroyed the tabernacle, and they even captured the ark. You see, you can't hide from God's judgment by hiding behind the things of God. Church attendance won't replace attending to your heart. Relics of religion are no substitute for a reality of a relationship. It's not the things of God that save us, it's God himself. That's where our trust needs to be. Asaph continues, he says, For God is my king from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. He remembers that God delivered Israel from Egypt. 
salvation from of old. If He delivered them from Egypt, He can deliver them from Babylon. He had saved them in the past. He can save them again. And in verses 13 through 17, Asaph here describes how God brought the Hebrews through the Red Sea. And he also mentions the attempt that Satan made to stop them. He says, you divided the sea by your strength. You broke the heads of the sea serpents in the waters. You broke the heads of Leviathan in pieces and gave him as food to the people inhabiting the wilderness. Well, wait a minute. That wasn't uh, in the movie with Charlton Heston. I mean, I never saw him do that. What, what, what's with all of that? Sea serpents and leviathans and chopping up food and feeding it to the, you know, the people. Here is an extremely cryptic and, and a very provocative passage. Notice here, Asaph describes the parting of the Red Sea. But it sounds like an episode of the deadliest catch. I mean, God fights this sea serpent. He breaks his head. And then he transforms the sea serpent's carcass into survival food that his people eat as they wander through the wilderness. My, oh, my. That's a different picture. And notice the name of the sea serpent that appeared in the Red Sea to confront and combat God's salvation of his people. His name was Leviathan. You know, we talked about this imagery back in Job chapter 26. Throughout the scripture, the sea serpent, Leviathan, rises up out of the sea to thwart God's creative work. Job 26 recounts creation. And there Job says of God, By his spirit he adorned the heavens, and here's how he did it. His hand pierced the fleeing serpent. It's a different picture of creation. Job pictures creation as a battle between God and a serpent. Read between the lines and you get a similar picture. It begins to emerge out of Genesis 1. Notice there, chaos and darkness are on the face of the deep. The Spirit of God is hovering over the waters. Battle lines are being drawn. Obviously, a fight went on there at the very creation of the heavens and earth. And it's interesting when man sins, again, Who's involved? A serpent is involved. Once again, a serpent has taken the lead to thwart God's... He couldn't stop God's creation in Genesis 1, so he tries to spoil his creation in Genesis 3 by convincing the man and the woman to sin against God. According to Psalm 74, this same battle reemerges at the Red Sea. Again, you divided the sea by your strength. You broke the heads of the sea serpents in the waters. You broke the heads of Leviathan in pieces and gave him his food to the people inhabiting the wilderness. Some Bible commentators see the sea serpent as a symbol of Egypt and Pharaoh. And certainly God broke the Egyptian army in the sea. But I think you should look deeper than Pharaoh. The word Leviathan means twisting serpent the preferred form that Satan assumes. You know, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 is a passage pregnant with meaning. It's known as the Proto-Evangelicum, or the first mention of the gospel in Scripture. It depicts the cross as a battle between Jesus and Satan. He says of the cross of Jesus that the seed of the serpent will bruise Jesus' heel, but Jesus, the seed of the woman, will crush the serpent's head. He'll break his head. 
which is exactly what God does here in verse 13. You see, by the time Satan gets thrown into the lake of fire at the end of the age, he's going to have quite a headache because God will have broken his head numerous times. Revelation 12 takes us back to the future. And there in the midst of the great tribulation, war breaks out in heaven. Satan gets bounced. And it's interesting what happens. Revelation 12 verse 9 calls Satan the great dragon. What is a dragon? But a sea serpent with legs. And he also calls him that serpent of old. And as soon as Satan is thrown out of heaven, he pursues his old habit. It's instinctive by now. The serpent attacks Israel. Back to Psalm 74. This is what happened at the Red Sea. The serpent again attacked Israel as the nation passed through the waters. And God did what? He broke the heads of Leviathan in pieces. It was a spiritual battle at the crossing of the Red Sea where God once again defeated the serpent. (laughs) Follow it so far? Because this is where it really gets strange. Because he goes on and he says, and gave him as food to the people inhabiting the wilderness. What does God do with the sea serpent once he breaks him in pieces? He feeds him to the children of Israel as they wander through the wilderness. And what did the Israelites eat during their wilderness wandering? Remember what the food was called? Manna. And what does the word manna mean? We don't know. You know what manna means? It means, what is it? That's what manna means. What is it? They didn't know what they were eating in the wilderness. Was it sea serpent meat? Maybe. It was nothing like their normal diet because they said, what is this stuff? What is it? Well, well, it's manna. It's what is it? It's what it is. How ironic, though. Leviathan tries to destroy Israel, but God turns the tables. Satan gets beaten and then eaten. God chops up the sea serpent and he uses the pieces to sustain Israel in the desert. Once again, God gets the last laugh. I hope you're getting that point by now. God always gets the last laugh, Asaph. You know, ancient Mesopotamian folklore speaks of this showdown between God and the sea serpent where the serpent is cut into pieces and given to God's people as food. It sounds so strange, but it is a common storyline both in the Bible and in extra-biblical sources. The idea gets repeated elsewhere in Scripture as well. Just check out Psalm 89, verse 10. We'll get to it in a few weeks. Now, we think of the Exodus as a battle between Israel and Egypt, but in truth, it was a spiritual battle between God and that twisting serpent Leviathan. There's one certainty. All of this does give us plenty of food for thought. Indeed it does. Well, verse 15 tells us, You broke open the fountain and the flood. You dried up mighty rivers, a reference to the Red Sea. The day is yours. The night also is yours. You have prepared the light and the sun. You have set all the borders of the earth. You have made summer and winter. Notice this. God sets all of the borders, all of the boundaries. He sets days and he sets years and he establishes weather. And God authors latitude and longitude. 
and God authors the 95-degree summer day and the minus 10-degree winter day. God sets the borders. He, he decides all these things. Remember this, that the enemy has reproached, O Lord, and that a foolish people has blasphemed your name. O do not deliver the life of your turtle dove to the wild beast. Do not forget the life of your poor forever. You know, in recent weeks, Israel has been acting very hawkish. But Asaph sees Israel as a defenseless dove, and he prays for God's protection. He says, have respect to the covenant, for the dark places of the earth are full of the haunts of cruelty. Boy, I've been in some of those dark places. They they are all the dark places, full of, of haunts of cruelty. Oh, do not let the oppressed return ashamed. Let the poor and needy praise your name. Arise, O God, plead your own cause. Remember how the foolish man reproaches you daily. Do not forget the voice of your enemies and the tumult of those who rise up against you increases continually. Now, God didn't forget his promises to Israel or the crimes of her enemies. In 735 B.C., Babylon, the unconquerable city, or so they thought, was conquered by the Medes and the Persians. And it's interesting, the first decree issued by the Persian ruler Cyrus was to allow the Jews to return home and to rebuild their temple. Here he bemoans that the temple has been burned and destroyed. But God gets the last laugh, Asaph. And in the end, the Jews are allowed to come back and they rebuild what the enemy has destroyed. Once again, God proves faithful. Well, Psalm 75 rewinds 140 years from the period of the Babylonians to another time when Judah was on the brink of battle. On this occasion, the Assyrians were the invaders. It was King Hezekiah and Isaiah who prayed. And in answer to their prayer, in the night, an angel of the Lord came and slew the mighty Assyrian army. The next morning, Hezekiah, he looked over the wall. And there across the battlefield, 185,000 Assyrian troops lay dead. And that's when another Asaph picked up his pen and he wrote, We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks for your wondrous works declare that your name is near. Remember Psalm 74? The psalmist wanted to know how long it would be for God to judge the wicked. Notice now in Psalm 75 verse 2, God tells him, When I choose the proper time, I will judge uprightly. How long will it last? God says, in the proper time. He says, I choose these times. I choose the appropriate times. It's not always when we desire, but it's when God knows best. God chooses proper times. He says, the earth and all its inhabitants are dissolved. I set up its pillars firmly, selah. I said to the boastful, do not deal boastfully. And to the wicked, do not lift up the horn. Do not lift up your horn on high. Do not speak with a stiff neck. You know, since an animal's strength was in its horns, horn in the Bible is is used as an idiom for strength. And so here he's saying, don't boast in your own strength. It's as if he's saying, hey, don't toot your horn. You know, don't get haughty here. God is the one who's, who's done these things. And then he says, for exaltation comes neither from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south. But God is judge. 
He puts down one and he exalts another. Here's a wonderful verse. God arranges the pecking order. God is the one who doles out the opportunities and establishes authority and sets a chain of command. Hey, if you're looking for a promotion, the first person you should go and see is God. For promotion, exaltation comes from God. Notice also by process of elimination, notice God abides in the north. Being a southern boy, it's hard for me to admit this, but apparently it's true. God abides in the north. He says, Promotion doesn't come from the east or from the west or from the south, but it comes from the north. Evidently, that's where God lives. God came to Job out of a whirlwind that came out of the north. In Ezekiel's vision, the throne of God comes from the north. The sacrifices in the temple were always offered on the north side of the altar, as Leviticus 11 verse 1 puts it, before the Lord. Maybe this is why our compasses always point to true north. Again, as a southerner, it's hard to admit, but God always associates himself with the north. With the north. Now, he's going to speak in a southern drawl, I'm sure, but he comes from the north. Verse 8. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup, and the wine is red. It is fully mixed, and he pours it out. Surely its dregs shall all the wicked of the earth drain and drink down. This is God's cup of wrath. This is God's cup of judgment. I'll bet you've never heard God referred to as the divine bartender. But but that's the picture that we have here in verse 8. God is behind the bar. God is the one mixing the drinks. And understand, he's about to mix a double shot of righteous wrath for the wicked of this world. Next time you're at a party, be careful what you do. Remember, God is the one who ultimately stirs all the drinks. Here he says he pours it out. He pours out his judgment upon the wicked. He mixes the cup. He says, but I will declare forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. All the horns of the wicked I will also cut off. In other words, all their strength I'll cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be exalted. God is the one who humbles and who exalts. Reminds me of what Jesus said in Matthew 12. I'm sorry, Matthew 23, verse 12. Whoever exalts himself will be abased, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. The Septuagint, which was a Greek translation of the Old Testament, contains a footnote that dates Psalm 76 also to the time of the Assyrian evasion of Jerusalem in 722 B.C., which actually connects it with the previous psalm, Psalm 75. These two psalms go hand in hand. Asaph begins, In Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. In Salem also is His tabernacle and His dwelling place in Zion. The word Salem is short for what word? Jerusalem, right. Mount Zion is one of Jerusalem's five mountains, but it's also the name for the whole city. He says, there he broke the arrows of the bow, the shield and the sword of battle. Outside the walls of Jerusalem, God delivered his people from the sword of these ferocious Assyrians. You can read about this night of deliverance in 2 Kings chapter 19. 
psalmist says in verse 4, you are more glorious and excellent than the mountains of prey. After the angel's slaughter of the Assyrians, they fled the rest, those who remained, they fled the camp. And they left behind piles, literally mountains, of treasure and supply and gold and silver. They left behind these mountains of prey. Yet in Asaph's estimation, God is more glorious and more excellent than all these stacks of spoils, all these mountains of prey. I hope you've concluded that no amount of blessing can ever compare to the blesser himself. The giver is always more glorious than his gifts. Verse 5, the stout-hearted were plundered. They have sunk into their sleep. And none of the mighty men have found the use of their hands. At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both the chariot and horse were cast into a dead dead sleep. Apparently God put the Assyrian soldiers into a deep sleep right before he executed them. It was an act of mercy, even in his judgment. It was as if the angel performed sort of a lethal injection on them all. Verse 7, you yourself are to be feared. And who may stand in your presence when once you are angry? Did you know God gets angry? Did you know God gets angry with sin? You need to know that. You can get into a lot of trouble unless you know that. He says, you caused judgment to be heard from heaven. The earth feared and was still when God arose to judgment to deliver all the oppressed of the earth. God judges sin and sinners. It just doesn't always happen when I think it should. Always remember what God says here in Psalm 75, verse 2. When I choose the proper time, I will judge uprightly. God judges in His time. He says, surely the wrath of man shall praise you. With the remainder of wrath, you shall gird yourself. Make vows to the Lord your God and pay them. Let all who are around Him bring presents to Him who ought to be feared. He shall cut off the spirit of princes. He is awesome to the kings of the earth. Boy, every king needs to be conscious that he also has a king. Every king needs to be conscious of the fact he reports to a king as well. Every president needs to understand that he has an authority to which he is accountable. We need to pray for President Obama this week as he takes the oath of office, as he lays his hand, understand on the same Bible that Abraham Lincoln used. You know, when he's sworn into office, we need to pray for him. He has big challenges ahead of him. And we pray that he's successful. We pray that he does well. We pray that he honors God in his decisions. We need to pray for him. And we need to most importantly pray that he understands, that he realizes that he is accountable to God for how he uses this opportunity he's been given. Well, Psalm 77 is a prophecy given when the Babylonians invaded Judah. We're going back and forth from the Assyrians to the Babylonians. And it asks, really, the same question as does the book of Habakkuk. Recall the prophet Habakkuk? He was very confused. Here was his problem. Why would God judge his people were the people more wicked than the Jews. I mean, the Babylonians, they made the Jews look like choir boys. 
And yet God was using them to judge the Jews. Why would God do such a thing? It just didn't make sense to Habakkuk. Again, we clear a huge hurdle in our relationship with God when we realize that His ways aren't always guaranteed to make sense to us. Have you realized that yet? That, that God doesn't, he doesn't owe you an explanation. He, he, he hasn't guaranteed that, that everything He does is going to make sense to you in your little pea brain. He hasn't limited Himself in that way. I learned a long time ago, God has a great curveball. He also has a good change-up. And He's not afraid to throw either of them at any point in the count. I mean, there are times when God deliberately works in ways that don't make sense to me. It's a curveball. Or He'll change it up. And He'll do so to test my faith. Do I trust Him when I can't trace Him? Can I obey Him in the dark? Real faith will always be able to trust God even in the dark. Do I follow my own sense of reason or do I trust in God? You've heard me tell this story before, but I think i got time to slip it in. The little boy who was scared of the dark. And one night his mom told him to, to go out on the back porch and fetch the broom. He said, but mom, I can't go out there. It's too dark. She said, son, Jesus is with you wherever you go. Go ahead. You can do it. So he goes to the back door. He cracks the door just a few inches, and he says, hey, Jesus, if you're out there, how about handing me that broom? God wants us to be able to trust him even in the dark places. He says in these first four verses, I cried out to God with my voice, to God with my voice, and he gave ear to me. In the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. My hand was stretched out in the night without ceasing. My soul refused to be comforted. Asaph was so distraught he couldn't sleep. I remembered God and was troubled. I complained and my spirit was overwhelmed. You hold my eyelids open. I was so troubled that I cannot speak. You ever been so troubled you can't go to sleep? He's saying here that God's taken toothpicks and he stuck them in my eyelids. You know, I just can't get to sleep. I have considered the days of old, the years of ancient times. I call to remembrance my song in the night. I meditate within my heart, and my spirit makes diligent search. Will the Lord cast off forever, and will He be favorable no more? Has His mercy ceased forever? Has His promise failed forevermore? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has He in anger shut up? His tender mercies. Has God forgot to be gracious? Has He just taken all of His mercy and just, just put it in a closet and just said, enough of that, I'm not going to give them any more? Boy, the situation the psalmist faces just doesn't fit with his knowledge of God. He knows of God as a gracious God. He says from ancient times, God has been faithful. And yet at this moment, Asaph feels that he's been abandoned by God. You know, there's a great passage from Daniel Defoe's novel, Robinson Crusoe. I'm sure you know the story. A man gets shipwrecked on a deserted island, and in the beginning, Crusoe finds the island to be a tropical paradise. He's very content there. Life is good. Until one day, he makes a discovery that changes everything. Defoe writes, 
It happened about noon, going towards my boat. I was exceedingly surprised when the print of a man's naked foot on the shore, which was very plain to be seen on the sand, I stood thunderstruck. I had no sleep that night. And the farther I was from the occasion of my fright, the greater my apprehensions were. Fear banished all religious hope. All that former confidence in God now vanished. I lived two years under this uneasiness, which made my life much less comfortable than it was before, all on account of the print of a man's foot, even though I had never seen any human creature come near the island. Now now notice, an inexplicable turn of events robbed Robinson Crusoe of his faith and his confidence in God. That mysterious footprint in the sand. What he couldn't explain robbed him of what he knew. And and this is where we have to be careful. Because there's things that come up in life that are a mystery to us. And yet there are other things that we know, that we're confident in. We can't let the inexplicable rob us of the known. We have to know who God is. We have to know that we know. We have to believe and trust. And we have to remember that faith doesn't always get a reason. Real faith is faith even in the dark. Notice verse 10, the psalmist says, And I said, This is my anguish, but I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. I will also meditate on all your work and talk of your deeds. Once again, remember in the dark what you learned in the light. When faced with what you don't know, hold on, hold tight to what you do know. Verse 13, your way, O God, is in the sanctuary. Here we are again. you got to go into the sanctuary. When you get confused on the streets, you need to head to the sanctuary. You need to hold on on the street what you've learned in the sanctuary. Asaph here finds encouragement and comfort and a renewed faith by turning from the situation to God in the sanctuary. Boy, in the street, in the watchtower, among the circumstances, things can look bleak, but in the sanctuary, that's where we get our balance. That's where we get brought back to our foundation. That's where we're reminded in the sanctuary that God is greater than any problem that I might have. And yet someone might challenge that thought tonight. Isn't that a cop-out, Sandy? You're saying when the real world gets tough, we're supposed to escape to the sanctuary. Hey, here's what we need to realize. The sanctuary is the real world. The world we live in is temporary. It's passing away. Trust me, your situation, your circumstances, they're bound to change. But God's promises are going to last forever. The real world is the sanctuary. Here's a good point. Sometimes the spark of faith is slight and does not make the darkness bright. But keep it lit and you will find far better this than being blind. One little flame when all is night. 
proves there is such a thing as light. And faith stays lit in the sanctuary, in God's presence. Verse 14, you are the God who does wonders. You have declared your strength among the peoples. You have with your arm redeemed your people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph. The waters saw you, O God, the waters saw you. They were afraid. The depths also trembled. The clouds poured out water. The sky sent out a sound. Your arrows also flashed about. Lightning here is viewed as God's arrows. The voice of your thunder was in the whirlwind. The lightnings lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was in the sea. Your path in the great waters and your footsteps were not known. At the crossing of the Red Sea, God's footprints were not known. Israel was trapped between the sea on one side and the charging army on the other side. And Moses had no clue how God was going to save his people. He couldn't see God's footprints. But God was there. God did save his people. And sometimes you don't see God's footprints, but God is still there. Oftentimes, God doesn't leave footprints. He says, you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. And the same is true in our life today. Sometimes we get trapped between a rock and a hard place. We can't figure God out. His footprints are not known to us. But that's where faith kicks in. You learn, need to learn to trust Him regardless You need to go to the sanctuary. You need to keep that spark of faith lit. Remember, one little flame when all is night proves there is such a thing as light. I pray that your faith will be that proof tomorrow. Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your words tonight. Strengthen our hearts, strengthen our minds, Lord, as we meditate on your scriptures. Thank you for your word. Lord, we recognize that there is a way that seems right to us, but the end leads to death. Lord, we don't want to walk down that path. We want to know the truth. Lord, we want to constantly be coming back to the sanctuary, opening up our Bibles, filling our mind with your presence and with your thoughts and with your word. Lord, we need to be in the sanctuary so we can see clearly on the streets. Thank you for tonight. Thank you for these Sunday nights where indeed we can come into the sanctuary and regain that biblical perspective, that godly perspective. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your love for us. Lord, we pray for our nation. We pray this week for our president. We pray that as President Obama takes office, Lord, that he would be very conscious, very conscious that he is accountable to you that the decisions that he makes, that the opportunities that you've given him have come from your hand, that exaltation comes not from the east or west or south, but it comes from you. Lord, I pray that you'll give him wisdom to lead our country in, in your way, in the right way. And Lord, we pray humbly tonight for our trip, that you'll bless Uh, this conference, that it would be an encouragement to the pastors who come, pastors from from Europe, from really all over the, the world. We pray that you'll bless this conference in a mighty way, that you'll bless Pastor Nick and Pastor David there in Germany as they prepare and as they pull things together and the church there in Ziegen. Lord, that you'll give us a safe trip over there. 
We pray, Lord, that you'll use us in a mighty way. We love you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. And one more thing. (laughs) And, Lord, we pray for the missionaries sitting out in this sanctuary tonight, everyone that's here, that as they go into their appointment this week, the person you want them to reach, that you want them to speak to, we pray for our brothers and sisters here tonight that you'll use them in mighty ways this coming week. In Jesus' name, amen.